so it's about recognizing that we need to move away from that culture where we can just cast aside with little regard for the environment the packaging that's had a use case of a few days or less in pursuit of convenience and low cost. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Good Garbage Podcast. My name is Veth Krishna. My primary reason for existence has been to find ways to leave our wonderful planet cleaner. We will be speaking with material innovators, creators and propagators to learn from them how we can build for scale and towards a regenerative future. Their stories will help us answer the big question, what is good garbage? Hello, hello. So we were in this uh, wonderful conference, uh, which I've mentioned a few times. It's called uh, Rethinking Materials. It happens in London every year in May, where there's a cohort of people who are innovators, creators, producers, users, financers of new materials or regenerative materials and packaging that collects. Amongst those, there is also a bunch of uh, people who are kind of startups and coming out with new ideas. So there is some of these sessions are like pitching sessions and there were four different technologies that were showcasing at the event. Three of those out of the four, three of those were younger startup looking people and there was an older a more distinguished looking gentleman who actually went first and I was blown away with what he said because he talked about seaweed or sea kelp being the base of their technology but what they were trying to create from it was a strong barrier and heat sealable properties which is actually really difficult to do considering you know that seaweed actually grows in water and uh, the basic properties are uh, from the gelatin kind of material that is extracted from the seaweed. The name of the company was Kelpi, and uh, the person was Neil Morris. And of course, as soon as I heard that, I had to ping our producer, Alex, who was in the same room. And uh, we said, we must have him on the show. And uh, we have him today. And it has been a great conversation to learn more about what Kelpi is doing and how they are going getting to the kind of performance that they are talking about i'm sure you'll enjoy the conversation hello hello we are here today with neil morris who's the co-founder and ceo of kelpie so neil and i met briefly at uh, rethinking materials which is a wonderful conference that happens in london every year and i was actually neil i was actually blown away by your pitch that you did there and it was just uh, so crisp and clear about what you wanted to do. So immediately, I actually, from the audience, I texted Alex, we have to talk to Neil, we have to get him on the show. So, so there you are. So thank you for taking that offer and coming on the show. So thanks so much for being here. Thank you for your kind words. So we are, we are going to start with Neil the person because I went through your profile on LinkedIn. Of course, I did my bit of stalking and Alex did his. And uh, we found such an amazing career because it's just like, you know, journalism and different companies and technology and then, of course, Kelpie. But what I want to really know about is your growing up years and if other things that got brought into your DNA that influenced your choice as of now. Wow, that's a good question. I guess I'd start probably if I was looking at growing up at growing up relatively close to the seaside uh, in Devon in the south of England, uh, where I was lucky enough to, we well, didn't quite live on the beach, but we were just a few miles away from the beach. So I could get down to the seaside dream of the open sea, as Antoine de Saint-Exupéry would have said, but also to have a look at seaweed washing up and the, the uh, look across the cliffs to the next bay and think, I wonder whether we're really looking after our planet as well as we could be. We've got this amazing planet. We probably need to work harder towards it. And so even then I was becoming a little more conscious of the environment. Although like most people growing up in the 1960s and 1970s, I think the concept of finite resources was something reserved for the ethereal environment of, of discussions in the classroom about perhaps one day oil would run out and not that we would actually start to reach a world where oil was causing such untold damage to our ability to survive. And you go from there to a very wide and checkered career in different uh, domains and talk to us a little more about this wide exposure. And again, 
thinking about how it helps you now in, in running something which is so wonderful? Sure. So uh, I'd uh, spent time between school and university and at university. Uh, I was lucky enough to live in Berlin in the 1980s when there was a wall running down the middle of the city uh, where we were on a a capitalist island in a hostile socialist state uh, where the uh, dominant logic was that we needed to work hard to preserve one form of life where those on the other side of the wall were equally working hard to preserve their form of life and the two were pitted against each other and it was an immensely interesting part of my life and one where I saw a an antagonism that simply wasn't helping humanity move forward caused by a refusal to look at life through the eyes of somebody else a refusal to compromise on a political ideal in pursuit of something that that meant more and so from there when I went back to university in the UK to complete that I then headed off to the US and set up my first company straight out of university no idea of what I was doing but had landed in the US in the mid-1980s at a time of immense opportunity for everybody even a, a, a geeky kid from like me without any real experience was given opportunities just to prove himself in setting up and running a new business nobody said no they just said prove it it. And I liked that sort of environment. And that uh, led to my very first business, a music merchandising business in the US. And that gave me the experience of being an entrepreneur, the thrill of setting up something brand new and seeing if it would work, and the desire to keep throwing creative thinking and entrepreneurialism at an opportunity to start to change the world. I guess from there, the desire to make a real impact on the world was growing, not just to set up a new company and see if it would work, but to actually see if I could leverage my own abilities to create greater change. And that's what uh, underpinned my decision to come back to Europe and uh, develop a career in journalism, first on newspapers, and then subsequent to that, uh, working for BBC television news and independent television news uh, in a variety of roles, most memorably perhaps in going to work in Bosnia at the height of the Bosnian war uh, for the BBC and then soon after that to Rwanda immediately after the genocide in Rwanda and working in the most extreme situations where humans were desperately struggling merely to stay alive but again finding an awful lot of humanity in the suffering there perhaps most notably in Rwanda a country uh, utterly devastated by the appalling genocide there and yet where there was a lot of hope a lot of belief that we could still begin to rebuild a better world and who knows that it's difficult to imagine a more devastating experience than that was experienced in Rwanda at the time. So that then led to uh, a set of ideas about how I could uh, start to, to influence change at a greater level, both as a journalist and then uh, I guess I got the technology bug there and started uh, started playing around with technology particularly first for the BBC News Channel and then in other contexts in in the private sector, moving more into marketing technology and testing the ability of technology to create a platform for change uh, at a wider level. Yeah, those are some, of course, I saw your journalist uh, career. I did not, of course, know that uh, you were in these uh, war zones and post-war zones. I'm actually in Croatia right now, so very near Bosnia. And I've been going on a lot of walks on like the war tour in Zagreb and being exposed to that whole separation of Yugoslavia and, of course, Bosnia and then, of course, uh, Serbia and the the lovely relationship that Croatia and Serbians, Croatians and Serbians share, and of course, uh, Bosnians in between. So I can imagine, I, I can't really imagine, but um, I'm sure all this also impacts your passion for what you do. And I would, of course, like to hear if you can make a connect with that. But the other passion that you clearly seem to have is on the outdoors kind of this and you just when we were getting into this conversation you talked about cycling back and that was one of my questions you know like being outdoors being into sport and uh, things like that how is that influenced so both those things on how they influence 
your choices of building a sustainable organization. One of the projects I was lucky enough to, to lead whilst at the BBC was uh, looking at post-traumatic war experience and the rebuilding of, of societies. And we used sport partly as a way to uh, help children through sport uh, start to help the healing process. Uh, I went out and worked in Nicaragua um, with uh, with the BBC in taking sports equipment out and and helping uh, children there uh, in quite remote communities that had still been ravaged by the Nicaraguan civil war to start to just experience the joy of playing in a playground the kind of experiences that you and I Vade might take for granted as part of every childhood but of course can be so difficult to find in the kind of traumatic experience after a civil war or other sort of war and so sport had always been a great way of yeah getting rid of the stress of work but also perhaps looking at how people play together in team sports how societies can team up in ways that are less structured than those driven by political choice but are equally effective in bringing people together and helping people work alongside each other. After the uh, BBC experience that I mentioned, uh, I moved into a hybrid consulting and digital world where I was applying the new digital thinking I developed, particularly alongside the BBC and working for other broadcasters, to address, again, societal change, uh, set up a new agency and a hybrid agency consultancy we might call it uh, helping public sector government departments and agencies uh, use the web to go beyond what it was predominantly used for at the time 2001 2002 three which was brochureware into instead using it for public service delivery. So we helped um, NHS Direct, a telephony health service in the UK, move from telephony only into using the web to help offer uh, things like sexual health information to uh, to teenagers and those in their 20s who were more likely to draw on information provided on a website than they were on uh, telephony-based information. That sounds obvious to us now in 2023, but at the time in 2002-3-4, that wasn't necessarily dominant thinking in government departments and others. And from that, I then, when I uh, decided to sell that agency into a larger group, I then moved on and attempted i guess i needed to prove to myself that when you make your hobby in my case cycling triathlon and running into your job it really does cost you some of what you loved in your hobby so i went off to work for the world's largest online retailer of cycling running and triathlon goods Uh, again using sport as a way to to uh, help change the world uh, in this case as well just in, in introducing more people into cycling the joy of that of of being outdoors working on events as well as um, uh, developing the company uh, and a, a very rewarding period uh, in my life and then to complete the picture coming back uh, then to uh, work where I live in Bath in the west of England. Uh, I was then involved in a software company using artificial intelligence uh, and machine learning to be able to improve personalization uh, in media choices. And that's when I decided that the next roll of the dice as an entrepreneur would be to focus on Kelpie. Yeah, and the one string I see running through, and you said it in a way, is, is the idea of societal change. And that's like when I look at Music, journalism, technology, outdoor sports, you know, there's that string running through in some way that, and that sort of gets us also to Kelpie, which is, of course, you know, this on the, on the same kind of spectrum of ideas. And uh, do you see parallels uh, when you think about your journey so far in, uh, in terms of, do you see parallels coming in? And of course, you know, whatever we learn over time, we bring into whatever is the present. Uh, but do you see actual, you know, it's, it's more overt in terms of parallels in what you did with making change through sport, making change through journalism, and coming into, you know, sustainability. Do you see there uh, being certain parallels? I guess so. I think uh, 
I've always been a believer, and I imagine I share this with you, Vade, of uh, seeing the opportunities of technology to allow us to, to change our world rather than merely reflect on the problems and measure the ways in which we've adversely impacted our world. And uh, I am a climate change optimist. Even in the face of some very challenging data, I'm not an optimist that says it'll work out fine. I'm an optimist who instead says we need to apply the very best of our thinking now to continually address the climate change challenges that we've created in order that we don't just sit back and put our feet up and go, oh, well, I guess we've missed the chance. I genuinely don't believe we've missed the chance. I believe we have to continue working on solutions that can help us address the terrors that we've uh, wreaked on our world. And by using technology to address those, we will continually find new opportunities to perhaps undo some of the damage. And that was always part of, in the major part of the reason to found Kelpie in the first place, was to go back to a, a way of thinking that would look holistically at the whole problem, at the systemic change required alongside using technology, in this case, uh, advanced materials, to address the specific challenge that we set out to. And that brings me very, sort of, very well to the idea of Kelpie. And how did that happen? How did that come about from, you know, not so much being in the material space to getting into the material space? And how did that, how did that occur? So I had been out cycling with uh, my friend and co-founder Murray Kenneth uh, arguing about ways to address climate change and and weekend after weekend as we cycled together we'd find ideas and opportunities to exchange thinking about the realistic ways in which we could address that. We both had experience myself of growing up in the seaside, as I mentioned, Murray as having been a round-the-world yachtsman who had sailed through, uh, through the Caribbean, Panama Canal, right across the Pacific, uh, and in doing so had experienced some of the even then, the early horrors of marine plastic pollution, recognising the phenomenal power that seaweed might play in helping us to address some of the problems that we'd caused. So from that point, uh, my network then got me as far as Professor Chris Chuck at the University of Bath. And Chris, who's now our CTO, uh, was already working as one of the world's leading authorities on seaweed, albeit to that point, had focused some of his work on biofuels, a quite challenging economic case, but nevertheless a really interesting opportunity to explore one of the applications of seaweed. So Murray and I walked into his office the first time we met, and we put on the table in front of him a uh, PET plastic tray or punnet uh, in which fish had been packaged and a LDPE low density polyethylene lidding film. Uh, Pop that on a table in front of him. I I promise you, Vade, I had washed it before the meeting uh, and said to him, uh, so the fish in this punnet uh, had a total fridge life of about eight days, but the packaging that it arrived in has a total life of probably nearly a thousand years before it breaks down. And Chris was already violently nodding and agreeing with us and saying, this is great because this is exactly where I've become increasingly focused. And from that moment on, the three of us started to think how using Chris's brilliant world-leading expertise in seaweed and how we could use it to create bioplastics or biomaterials and Murray and my business expertise, because Murray, like myself, is a serial entrepreneur, to together combine the best of science, of business and of creative thinking to develop ways in which we could build an alternative to fossil fuel plastics, an alternative that would work as well, but was entirely compostable and fully biodegradable, that was renewably sourced, but allowed us to be able to displace fossil fuel plastic packaging with something with equal effectiveness. It's still a huge change. And you're sort of literally, in a way, you are three guys betting your life on it. And, uh, you know, you're, you're sort of, uh, somebody is a teacher, another person is, you know, you're working 
uh, in, in an IT domain. I'm sure Marie would doing, was doing something else. That takes huge conviction. How did that come about that we really want to chuck it all and get into this? I'd always seen it as, it's an interesting that you use the word chuck it all. I'd always seen it as turning the page onto a new chapter. And like most of the novels that you're reading at the moment, the novels that I read really uh, evolve from chapter three to chapter four. But that you need to be building towards something that adds more meaning both to the chapters that go before and defines the chapters that come afterwards. So for me, Kelpie is my sixth startup. Uh, the others have all been different from the one I described right at the outset when I was 22 years old in the US, right through to more recent ones in the UK uh, and Europe. So uh, for me, the idea around Kelpie was the opportunity to now apply all of that different entrepreneurial experience that myself I'd had, that Murray had had, particularly coming from his finance background, and combine that with Chris's phenomenal scientific intellect and capability, and start to build around us a team that could bring this to life now and start to produce the kind of thinking that would attract the attention of some of the world's largest companies, the, the largest users of fossil fuel plastics in single-use packaging. It is uh, like we saw in uh, Rethinking Materials, uh, there were so many people who were doing seaweed-based products. And uh, how does how does Kelpie differentiate it, its products and, and technology uh, just because you, you're seeing there's a huge evolution, even if they may not have scaled uh, yet, but clearly there's a lot of interest. And how do you see that? Uh, how do you see your business model and your product being different? It's a very good question because there are, as you say, a number of uh, alternative biomaterials using seaweed. And why? Because it, it is a fantastic feedstock. It really is a miracle plant from the outset where it uh, sequesters huge amounts of carbon dioxide as it grows through to uh, as it grows it pre presents a fantastic environment for fish stocks to replenish that's where fish breed uh, and then as it comes out of the water the opportunities to use it in a wide range of applications have been recognized of course for hundreds or even thousands of years it's been used as a human feed in some cases as a cattle feed uh, it's been used for clothing it's been used for nutrition benefits uh, and nowadays for biomaterials so starting from that uh, fantastic renewable material uh, what kelpie does then is extract the carbohydrates which we use as the basis for our biomaterials and th thus far that will be similar to other seaweed based uh, biomaterials producers what we then do is go into uh, a part of the process that kelpie has developed from the outset itself which has enabled us to be able to produce a brand new biopolymer that uh, allows us to achieve a, a greater water barrier than has been the case elsewhere whilst also delivering the oxygen barrier the barrier to acidic foods like fruits to greasy contents like conditioner uh, to surfactants like those seen in soaps and to enzymes like those seen in laundry liquids that together proves our material to be a highly effective at containing the kind of goods that we would need to contain whilst also offering the barrier properties required to displace fossil fuel plastics. So the, the other, I interviewed uh, Julia uh, at Sway, uh, Julia Marsh at Sway yes. a while back. And of course, uh, it was early days in terms of uh, me understanding the product. And then I also went and met uh, C6 Energy in India sure they were there and rethink as well F fascinating what both of those were doing and of course i got a little bit of an education on how seaweed works you talked about carbohydrates and of course i also realized that you know things like agar agar come from seaweed and you know there are other uh, nutrients as you mentioned what is it about seaweed that makes it such such a huge possibility for biomaterials what what is it in the plant give us a little more detail on that 
Uh, I'm going to answer first a different question, which is why seaweed rather than perhaps a land-based source of carbohydrate? Because yeah, it's one sure. of the things that seaweed does, of course, so well. And the answer is obvious to us, Vade, but it's worth restating. Seaweed needs no land to grow. It needs no fresh water to grow and it needs no fertilizer. So that means we can keep land for food production which is what critically required in so many cases. And we're not drawing on our freshwater resources, nor adding fertilizers, which cause potentially so many problems for the environment. So already we've started with something that's, that's growing itself and naturally. Then on top of that, we can look upon it as being something that creates a, a, a negative carbon state at the beginning of the carbon balance sheet we've sequestered a lot of carbon as it grows and this allows us to be able to look at the full life cycle of from growing through use to uh, uh, end of life that matches and exceeds so the uh, carbon benefits of so many other potential sources but then it's also that that seaweed remains relatively uh, underexploited in the potential it has to be able to increase production without drawing on land or other resources. So right now, just a tiny fragment of the world's nearshore seabeds have seaweed cultivation on them. And we don't need to increase too significantly the amount of our shoreline that cultivates seaweed in order to produce a huge amount and and access all the benefits that I've mentioned just now. Yeah, I wanted to get a little more on the properties of seaweed, like you mentioned carbohydrates, and what is it in the in the in the uh, in, in the substrate itself that uh, makes it more adaptable to biomaterials. So seaweed has some inherent properties that help when it comes to this. It, it, it has an inherently antimicrobial capability, more present in some species than others. But you can imagine straight away the potential that brings to packaging as well as to other applications. The reason it's used in nutraceuticals is it has trace elements of some quite important components. Uh, interestingly, seaweed presents a significant opportunity to reduce methane emissions from livestock particularly from cattle and so the amount of methane burped by cattle is a significant contributor to uh, greenhouse gas emissions adding a percentage of seaweed to their cattle feed can reduce those methane emissions by I understand up to 90% and I do want to stress that's not my core area of expertise so if that's of interest worth looking into further uh, with others but the kind of potential that we've seen which people had recognized uh, hundreds of years ago is still now I think we're only scratching the surface of what we can potentially be doing outside of any of the applications that we've talked about seaweed also has the the opportunity to and benefit of cleaning up the marine environment in many ways it filters out some of the things that are most most toxic in the environment and it can be used to to clean waterways river estuaries and reduce heavy metal presence but the seaweeds that we're interested in typically are greens and browns they grow in cool water temperate zones they go particularly prolifically in uh, more northern zones and so right now areas like Scandinavia and the Faroe Islands up to Iceland across to Greenland and northern Canada are some of the most high potential seaweed growing areas anywhere in the world and what we're seeing is countries from the Netherlands to Canada from Norway and the Faroe Islands to France and Belgium uh, around the UK and Ireland all recognizing that growing more seaweed has got huge social benefits as well as the environmental and industry benefits. Those social benefits include, for example, a, a country like the Faroe Islands, which are particularly dependent on fisheries for their economy. And in a world where fishing has become more economically challenging as fish stocks dwindle, so some of the fishermen can now replace fishing with seaweed farming as their source of their livelihood. And that's one of the reasons that a country, small as it is, like the Faroe Islands, is becoming one of the European capitals now for seaweed cultivation. So two questions emerging from that. One is, like, when you look at uh, 
typically when we see substrates being grown in colder climates, the rate of growth is slower. So does that is that different for seaweed in terms of like if you were to grow it in Malaysia or more temperate uh, zones versus uh, versus the Nordic uh, kind of areas, more cold areas? Does the rate of growth differ? Does the quality differ? It's certainly true that the rate of growth does differ by latitude. Uh, however, probably a greater source of differentiation is is the species and the way that that particularly grows. And we see different sorts of uh, yield of the carbohydrates that we need from different seaweed types. Uh, some of the rate of growth has become a major problem. So you may have heard of the Great Atlantic Sargassum Belt. This is a huge belt of seaweed that's moving with the tides from West Africa across to the Caribbean and uh, stimulated or rather overstimulated by the uh, phosphates and nitrogen wash-off from rivers like the Amazon and the Mississippi, that Great Atlantic Sargassum Belt has now become a source of huge problems to the beaches of the Caribbean, where it's washing up in huge amounts, creating a real uh, environmental catastrophe as that builds up, uh, uh, lets off noxious fumes, and uh, also does untold damage to the tourism industry there. And so that's become a real problem. I would love to be able to tell you that we could take that problem sargassum and turn it into our biomaterial packaging. However, in our research to date, that's not proved a valuable high yield source of the, of the particular carbohydrates that we need uh, to work with. So that's not able to be used as a source. Moving back though, Vade, to your question around northern latitudes, uh, what we see there is still uh, good rates of growth, albeit in uh, more northerly climes, often with a single harvest rather than the two harvests per year that you can achieve a little further south. But what we also see there in particular is a very high quality. Uh, the sort of quality that we need to be uh, considering how we get the high yield but guarantee the uh, sort of material that we need for food packaging but also the kind of quality that means that we can rely on on consistent uh, good seaweed. The weather patterns changing as they are due to climate change cause challenges for certain seaweed farms uh, and of course further north those are less likely to be major sources of disruption than the hurricanes or in the Pacific typhoons that we might see in more southerly climes. I'm told there are so many different varieties when it comes to seaweed, even within the browns and the greens, etc., etc. Yes. And I guess it also depends on where it is. So as a, as a company, how do you decide that this is what I'm going to go for? And you mentioned quality, and then you also mentioned economics. So, so I guess both those will be factors in your decision. And of course, accessibility may be the third. So if you, um, if, when you are deciding that this is the strain that you're going to use, how do these three things uh, come into play and how do you make a final choice that this is what we're going to stick to? A very good question. Kelpie sits uh, at a particular point in the in the value chain. Uh, we sit downstream from the biorefinery and so we're not uh, seaweed farmers ourselves nor are, do we have any uh, interest in the biorefinery. What we do is sit uh, downstream taking the product of that biorefinery. So seaweed farmers would uh, undertake the, the growing exercise themselves. They will then deliver dried and milled seaweed to a biorefinery normally, which is then able to uh, extract the carbohydrates that we need and other fractions of seaweed that other uses would need uh, in order that we can then uh, do the discussions with the biorefinery about accessing the right kind of quantity, quality and reliability of supply. Right now, over 90% of the world's farmed seaweed comes from East Asia. And whilst the amount of seaweed grown in North America, in uh, Europe and in Africa and other areas as well is growing phenomenally, it's growing from a relatively lower base. And that means that even as production picks up with the number of companies like ourselves interested in that output, we're likely to still have uh, East Asian seaweed as part of the mix for some time. It is certainly our intention to uh, continue to discuss as we are currently with uh, UK, Irish 
European and uh, North American sources of supply so that we can guarantee uh, sourcing our uh, biorefined seaweed as close as possible to where it will then be uh, applied and developed into biomaterials. That's super interesting. So that, that makes my understanding a little better. So what you are actually taking is an, a byproduct of the biorefinery. So that, and probably that makes your life easier in terms of access to material as well. And since you're taking a co-product of a material, does it really matter in terms of um, what my earlier question was, you know, the variety of seaweed, et cetera, or, or is it in the end, it's all cellulose and the carbohydrate is there and uh, it doesn't matter what the biorefinery has used because the end product is pretty homogeneous. Is, is that the way it works or no? The, the carbohydrate yield uh, changes quite significantly from one species to the next. And uh, we are still in our R&D exploring the answer to that question. It is a very good question and it depends on a number of factors, not just species, but also around the season, the time of the harvest and even the depth at which the seaweed has grown. And so we see differences in carbohydrate yields from seaweed right at the surface compared to that uh, a little further down. So there are a number of factors that can influence what produces the maximum yield of carbohydrate. And, and when we look at the process, once you take the uh, carbohydrate, is it pretty similar to pulping and cellophane kind of an idea? Or is it quite different on how you're broadly how you're planning to process uh, the product? So we uh, take the, the carbohydrate, uh, the carbohydrates from seaweed, and we blend those in a unique process that is ours alone for which we filed for patents we we blend those with uh, a material that gives us more plasticity more ability to be able to bend and flex our, our final coating and that is typically derived from uh, oils vegetable oils and similar that uh, allows us then to be able to create our unique biopolymer and it's that that uh, allows us to achieve the very strong water barrier that's such an important part of what Kelpie can provide to our clients and which uh, provides the point of differentiation between Kelpie and our uh, direct and indirect competitors. So in our case we've uh, devised a material that is specifically suited to coating, coating a, a range of substrates from paper and card carton board or fiber board into uh, wet molded and dry molded fiber and so our coating material applied to these substrates is what gives the ability for a paper packaging to replace that of uh, perhaps a polyethylene wrap or a, a PET pallet. And that is absolutely fascinating, especially because I come from the paper domain, uh, you know, like, because, and that's something we struggle with significantly. And in fact, when you were speaking and rethinking, that's what really tweaked my interest when you actually talked about the, both uh, the, the water vapor barrier, as well as the heat sealability, because that's something we are continuously in the lookout for in order to get. Uh, so of course, you talked uh, about utilizing a certain process. What has been the challenge to be able to come out with this barrier and was that something you thought about right in the beginning in terms of this is how we want to design it or did it evolve that this is a problem or this is a challenge that we want to solve how did it come about so we didn't set out to be a coatings company when we first started we actually spent quite a lot of our early year first two years focusing on on replacing plastic films but for a number of reasons, we evolved that focus from films onto coatings for the kind of substrates I've described. And those were for a number of reasons. First of all, that uh, we recognised that having to use more of our raw materials uh, in order to produce a film that would function as a standalone packaging material was going to be economically more challenging than literally stretching our raw material as fast as far as it would so our coatings can be uh, 30 to 50 to 70 microns in thickness so we can use a, a relatively modest amount of raw material to go a very long way when coating paper and and card 
that allows the substrate to do the heavy lifting to provide the tensile strength whilst we focus on what our seaweed derived carbohydrate coating is particularly good at which is providing the barrier properties we see it as being the combination of the two that provides the most attractive solution for our clients and uh, what we can then also achieve is a move away from a, a film which might still have some challenges around end-of-life treatment so typically the uh, biomaterials or bioplastics produced from uh, alternative materials cannot go into the plastic recycling process. They foul up that recycling process, whereas the coating that Kelpie has developed, once applied to paper and card and fibre, can then go straight into the paper and card recycling without consumers needing to peel off that coating layer and that allows then the material, the packaging material that we've produced to be fully recyclable. So Kelpie coating comes off in the first stage of the paper or card recycling process and therefore allows that paper and card to be fully recycled. And as you'll be aware of it, the rates of recycling for paper and card worldwide are far greater than those for plastics so we've got a much more circular economy solution now by focusing in that way absolutely i, I definitely agree that if it has to be recyclable then it's better in that stream in fact i was talking to another pulp and paper company that uh, like us is focusing a lot on flexible packaging and uh, they said that uh, their thinking was that actually the higher chances of recycling to happen than it going to a to a compost site so why don't we ensure that both happens and that exactly connects with what you are saying as well do you have something to add to the conversation? Use hashtag goodgarbage to add your own insights, ideas and opinions on regenerative packaging and zero waste solutions. Now, let's get back to the conversation. Just for my understanding, do you see the, the, the process of coating as being, you know, Kelpie creating pellets and then they being extruded? Uh, or how do you see that process working uh, when it comes to the actual application of the material? We can do extrusion. Um, we've explored that and that's still an, an avenue that we're discussing with some clients. But in more cases, we use dispersion coating. Uh, so allowing our material to be uh, applied either through rod or blade coating or through spray coating onto the paper or card. Uh, spray coating of course is particularly relevant when it comes to 3D objects like fibre trays which have already been pressed into shape and increasingly we can see so many brilliant uh, areas of evolution of, of wet moulded and dry moulded fibre into eventually the fibre bottle which I think is such an important development in packaging and we see that as being an area where Kelpie has a significant role to play. Super. And are you finding, who are you finding? Rather, I'm sure you are. So, so who are you finding as the early adapters and the early applications that this is something that is a sweet spot and this is something that we are going to target first? What has what that uh, journey been like? I smile because uh, as someone who's done marketing throughout my career, I'd normally expect to have to be on the front foot and going out and seeking our clients. We simply haven't had to do that with Kelpie. Uh, and right now we've had some of the world's largest companies in food and drink and in cosmetics and personal care coming to us and asking us whether our materials can be applied to their particular use cases. Uh, we found uh, huge FMCG, fast-moving consumer goods companies or consumer packaged goods companies as some would call them, uh, really interested in understanding how a Kelpie coated paper or card material could replace their PET or polypropylene or polyethylene packaging uh, and the clients that we're most enjoying and finding most effective partnerships with are those who have I think three things uh, a little bit of money it's not that we're looking for huge fees at this stage but willingness to invest in the development uh, 
patience because this is not something that we can do this month and then the willingness to be able to explore in creative ways the way in which we can not only push our materials to get as close as possible to or in some cases even start to exceed the performance of fossil fuel plastics but also recognise that we may need to evolve our understanding of what the required use case really is. And by that I mean, Vade, do we really need to necessarily package that for three years? Would one year or six months be sufficient to hold that in packaging? Do we really not believe that the end consumer would be willing to pay us a marginal premium for something that's sustainably packaged? And every time I have a discussion like uh, like we're having today, every time I go to a conference and talk to somebody, I find more and more that people are saying, yeah, absolutely, I'm willing to put a cent or a penny onto the cost of packaging in order to have a more sustainable alternative. And so those clients that we enjoy working with are those that recognise that it's not possible for us to achieve price parity with fossil fuel plastics certainly not right now and may not be the case for some time. It might take us three, four, five years before we can achieve that. We might not achieve it in some cases, but we need necessarily to still start investing our time, our resources in finding those solutions now. So it's the clients that that sit around a table with us saying, yeah, this will take time. Uh, we understand that, but we want to start working on those solutions now. Those are the clients that we find most effective in partnership with us. And uh, when it comes to applications, of course, there's a wide variety when you say card and paper. Within paper also, there'll be a huge variety of applications. It could be food packaging and it could be cosmetics or FMCG, fast-moving consumer goods. Um, is there a place where you find that the application works really well? And my second question on top of that is more to do with the properties. Um, are you able to, what is the best barrier that you're able to achieve in terms of water vapor or oxygen? You know, this is something that we know that we can achieve. So uh, we have just landed a uh, two-year development contract with a consortium of fresh fruit and vegetable packaging companies and their UK, French, Italian and Swiss supermarket clients. So this consortium is drawing on grant funding from the United Nations Environment Programme as well as from the UK aid budget as well as contributing their own money towards devising a medium long-term solution. So already as you can see we're talking about a two-year development programme not a two-month one that expects the future to be created by the end of tomorrow. That programme where Waitrose, one of the leading UK supermarkets, is the lead consortium member uh, on one side and Blue Skies, a pan-African and South American fresh fruit producer, is working closely with them, has given us a use case of packaged um, fresh fruit prepared for market uh, on site in Africa and then shipped to supermarkets across northern and western Europe in order for the fresh fruit to be on in consumers fridges straight away. So there our use case is to be able to develop a coating for card and paper that can contain uh, quite moist fresh fruit, high acidic content, high water content throughout a industrial cool chain and still be capable of holding those contents in a way that's not unattractive to consumers into their fridges and onto their tables. So part of that process will be working alongside the supermarkets to understand whether the end consumer is ready for the fresh fruit that they currently buy in a PET tray where they can look through the tray and see the condition of the fruit inside whether that consumer is ready to look at a beautifully printed glossy card coated with kelpie coating that is not uh, able to display the fruit in quite the same way and we're uh, delighted to be working on that side of the project as well because where we started today's conversation was talking about behavior change it was talking about how to create societal change and it is important that we don't underplay the need for all sorts of different perspectives to come together and say well we are willing to change the way that we think we are as end consumers willing to move away from a 
a uh, transparent or translucent uh, PET package towards one that's coated carbon-coated paper because we recognise the benefits of not using fossil fuel plastic in our single-use packaging. Is uh, one of the big applications that, uh, and I mentioned that in passing, is the whole flexible packaging multi-layered application uh, where, you know, all our potato chips and chocolates and crackers and what have you uh, all come in. And of course, that needs a huge uh, water vapor barrier, which of course, an inorganic substance derived from petroleum and then metallized with aluminum and, um, and, and, and that sort of a process is able to provide. We are talking about and under one WBTR. And of course, it, uh, it connects well with your thinking on, do we really need that two-year shelf life? You know, is that is that something that's good for human health? You know, <laughs> I'm talking about behavior change. Uh, but that said, you know, as the market stands today, uh, typically a larger conglomerate will say, this is our target in terms of oxygen transmission rate and water vapor transmission rate being under one even, uh, which is basically doesn't breathe at all. And uh, and then, then, of course, there's a certain amount of handling, shelf life, etc., etc. So if you were to look at Kelpie as one of the possible solutions in that domain, and that's such a huge domain because, you know, you can ban the plastic bag, but when you look inside, it's all full of flexible packaging, right? So, so you know, so how do you see that? Have you guys already run tests on the minimum uh, bar- maximum barrier that you can achieve in both those fronts. Yeah. When when you and I next get together, I'm going to draw you the diagram of what we've got developing on the off on the lab wall here. I always say it's a it's a set of dials and levers, so that rather than producing a single product definition, we can instead dial up and down on certain characteristics. We can increase the thickness of our coatings. We can coat single-sided or double-sided. We can increase or decrease the plasticity or the rigidity of our material. We can, by increasing the thickness, achieve some quite extraordinary barrier properties. But these come at a price. And our understanding of exactly how we achieve the best possible unit price whilst achieving the best possible barrier properties continues to evolve. And so over the year or two to come, we'll get a better and better picture of that. We too are looking at at a WVTR of of one or less than one we have not achieved that yet and it will be some time until we do achieve that but that's what our clients are asking us for as well the clients that we're now working with and they include some very large fmcg's food and drink producers recognize that in achieving a wvtr that's significantly higher than one we are still able to trend towards one and in doing so start to explore how we can twist the dials and levers to achieve that at a reasonable cost but i keep going back to what we mustn't do is suffocate the innovation in order in with a single-minded pursuit of the best possible cost we're competing against uh, 70 years of development of fossil fuel plastics we are not going to get to the stage that they've got to of ubiquity of of uh, a universal universally applicable product at a very very low cost without making some sacrifices along the way and i think the clients that we're enjoying with are those that enjoy working with are those that recognize that 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 can happen uh, but over time oh that's perfectly and it's really nice to hear that you can play around with that and i love to see all your livers on on the wall and how you go about it i'm definitely going to visit you next time i'm in england and see how you guys are doing what you're doing because it's kind of magic uh what what the direction that you're going because that is what the world really needs and i love your uh, analogy uh, earlier which is about skating where the puck will be <laughs> so so you know the ice hockey analogy that that's and then that's the direction uh, clearly you're going and uh, i'm going to pivot to another angle on uh, as a startup uh, how easy or difficult has the fundraising uh, part been for you guys and and are you are you happy with the way things are progressing there so yeah it, it's absolutely the right question Vade. uh fundraising reps, represents a challenge for uh, many uh, small businesses of our scale uh, we've successfully concluded a seed funding round last christmas uh, where we confirmed three million pounds uh, of funding that's given us a good runway 
during which we're already starting to explore the uh, Series A funding requirement that we will have when we go out probably early next year and look for our next funding input. We've got as our two co-lead investors, one, Science Creates Ventures, who's a, a deep tech specialist focused, as the name suggests, on science-based companies, and the other, Green Angel Syndicate, also as the name suggests, a number of angels brought together in a um, venture syndicate that uh, focuses on climate tech and has particular expertise of a large number of their members in focusing on areas of sustainability and even at the second and third level of our investors we're seeing similar uh, a combination of people who understand that deep tech is a sector that takes time to deliver returns but is vital if we're to be able to explore that uh, innovative approach to addressing climate change whilst at the same time also combining with climate tech investors who are excited by the possibilities of technology addressing climate change uh, as we must do so. And was it uh, quick enough when you looked at uh, going to the investors and getting your pitch? And how was the dilution? Did they did they ask for your skin, or were you, were they okay with uh, you know looking at uh, the possibilities that you're creating and uh, and you know um, minimizing the equity dilution? Uh, the, was it quick enough? It took a while. And I've got to say that was partly as, as we probably evolved our understanding of exactly who the right investors were. We ended up raising more than twice what we set out to. And so we were very pleased with the outcome. But it probably took us a while to, to really understand and start to sift through those investors that were uh, inappropriately looking for software-like returns. And I just don't think those can be applied in, in this sector versus those who, like our current investors now, really recognize the immense potential, but also that these things will take time and consideration. Uh, and I was really pleased with the investors that we ended up with. Um, the dilution, hey, that's part of the game. Uh, it, it, it goes with the space where the co-founders are not in this to try and maximize our personal return. Rather, we're in this to change the world. We genuinely believe that this has huge potential and we recognize to realize that potential, we need to take on investment to allow us to grow the team and start to address the needs of clients. So as we look forward now to our Series A, inevitably, we will also be looking at what the business is valued at today and what its potential is in the long term. But with such a huge marketing, as you're uh, very aware, such a huge market potential for uh, packaging, then uh, I think the right investors recognize this has, could have a fundamental effect. One or two of our clients have overt expressions of their uh, target to eliminate fossil fuel plastic from their entire supply chain, in one case by 2030, in another case by 2035. Others have very explicit targets to eliminate uh, fossil fuel plastics where not strictly necessary, or in others to replace current packaging with packaging that is only recyclable or compostable. In all cases, they've got a significant commitment in their corporate strategies to looking at sustainable packaging alternatives. So uh, I don't think there's many companies that, are, that we're going to be uh, buying from in the next five years that don't need to look at sustainability in their packaging lines, much as they do around their energy provision. It's definitely good timing. I'm sure uh, there are so many companies, like you say, who are adapting now and actually funding a more long-term kind of uh, patience in terms of even applications. So, so that, that helps both the funding and the market. Uh, I'm sure that helps both. And um, a little bit of a diversion, you mentioned your team in between. How big is the team? And I, again, uh, heard you talk about, uh, you know, working with a bunch of PhDs and, you know, what has that been like and how have you guys managed to build the bonds and then build a, a, a team that can do what you are trying to achieve? I'm immensely proud of the team we've get we've gathered here. It's a, it's so exciting working with such a, a driven group 
of individuals. We'd always set out to combine uh, scientific brilliance with entrepreneurial expertise and understanding experience in order to be able to uh, fuse, as I mentioned earlier, fuse science and business to fuse creative thinking with the ability to address the world's biggest problems and that remains our motivating factor we're not able to pay the best salaries in the business we're a startup that has to live within its means but what we do is point out the purpose of the business that unites so many uh brings so many people to want to come and work with us. We have, as you say, got a large number of PhDs working in the business. And right now, today, we're a team of 15 people. So we're still quite a modest size. But that's doubled already in the last year and will continue to grow very strongly. Uh, this week, it's actually our third birthday. Delighted to speak to you on the in the week that we're celebrating. So Happy birthday. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, on Tuesday, we brought together a number of stakeholders of people who've helped us grow to this point and in particular the investors who've been such an important part of our journey and we were able to give them all tours of the lab where the science team are working where we're combining chemical engineers with organic chemists people with polymer biopolymer experience and people with experience in scaling up production capability as well as product packaging designers who can bring in the thinking and apply it to bring to life our packaging solutions and the commercial team that is such an important part of our ability to engage consumers uh, uh, engage clients i should say uh, then the next day on Wednesday, we went out for one of our regular charity days. This was a day working with a local river trust here in the city where we went out, put on Wellington boots and, and gloves and uh, cleared an entire stream feeding the main river here in Bristol uh, from uh, plastic waste in particular, but all sorts of other wastes. We pulled out, I think, 32 big sacks of plastic waste, just the 15 of us in, in one stream. We pulled out shopping trolleys, enough parts of cars to build a, probably a new car, uh, pulled out all sorts of rubbish. And so bringing to life our purpose in other ways like that, knitting the team together and making sure that we use these opportunities to remind ourselves that what we're really here to do is address plastic waste pollution address the horrors that we've created with plastic waste not just to work on the material that will make us uh, successful as a business as well that's always been a part of of what we do and i come back to uh, you asked about the sort of motivation i come back to to everybody here feeling that this is an immensely meaningful task that we've embarked upon that recognize that yes we need to build a, a team that's appropriately uh, rewarded for what they do but that the most important part of what we do is actually creating the context for change and we do that in a way that uh, allows our all of our team to to come in to contribute to our thinking the next part of our third birthday celebrations will be a strategy day an odd thing you would you might think to celebrate our birthday with but it'll be a chance for everybody from the most junior to the most senior person in the company to come together and argue about whether our current strategic focus is right whether we should be developing new ways in which we can address our core mission and I can feel your excitement as you talk about your team, which is wonderful because that I think creates in the, in the business, ultimately it's the people who you work with. So looking at the commercialization aspect, how do you, how close do you think you are to actually start selling material? And, uh, and, and of course, uh, with that, it's a, maybe taking a horizon of maybe three to five years, what is the kind of size that you would like uh, Kelpie to be in? You know, that connects well with your strategy day that is coming now. And I'm sure you guys are already thinking about that. So, yeah, yeah. please. So uh, we still have some significant hurdles before we can start to uh, complete our go-to-market course, the most important of which is regulatory approval for food contact material. So we've been working on that. We weren't able to start until we got a, a settled version of what our core material comprised. Now that that's been settled, we are six months now into a process that is likely to take in total 18 months. It takes that long because both for the 
European Food Safety Agency in the EU and the FDA in the UK in the US, we need to uh, prove how our novel material will cause no problems in packaging food. So therefore, it's at least another 12 months until we have that regulatory approval in place. Alongside that, we're now proving the scale-up capability of our materials by working with third-party contract manufacturers to show how this will be scaled up so that once that regulatory approval is in place, we'll then quickly be able to move to uh, to scaling up production for our current clients. And that's why we're doing this co-development approach so that as we await that regulatory approval, uh, large clients can come in and work with us in collaborative partnerships to prove how our materials can address their particular use case. So whether in one case they're developing, they're acquiring a solution that would contain uh, shampoo or conditioner, we can work with that. In another case, we've been working with a major coffee brand uh, requiring our material to work well at 100 degrees centigrade water, but also under the pressure of a domestic coffee machine. In a third case, we're working with uh, the ability to contain a, a, a very fluid contents and keep the water barrier high. And then I've mentioned already the cases of, of fresh fruit and fresh vegetables with a high moisture content, but also a high acidic content. So those are all the kind of cases that we're, we're working on at the moment. So that towards the latter end of 2024, we'll then be in a position to have proven uh, the relevance of our material to a range of products, whilst also having the uh, regulatory uh, certification uh, that we need to, to progress. Yeah, and I'm sure when you sit for your strategy, if not this year, then next year, you will be setting up big, hairy, audacious goals to, to yes. sort of take this towards the direction that you guys are clearly trying to. Um, and that takes me uh, well to our last question. What does good garbage mean to you? I love this question. I, I think it's a fantastic question. Um, I'm going to go back to the concepts of the, of the circular economy. Uh, and I think good garbage to me is what uh, is reusable uh, in the right context. And so that could be recyclable, but I do mean recyclable, not downcyclable. And so, so much of what we term recycling is actually downcycling. It's turning into a lesser value product, whereas with the right materials, we can recycle them as the same value product. Uh, it's understanding that compostables um, have their role to play. They may, will not be a ubiquitous solution that works in all contexts, but they do have their, their role to play. But most of all, it's avoiding the plastic pollution that we've seen in our oceans, in our waterways, causing untold damage. Uh, and so it's about recognising that we need to move away from that culture where we can just cast aside with little regard for the environment, the packaging that's had a use case of a few days or less in pursuit of convenience and low cost and instead needs to have a world where we've got single-use packaging more aligned with the circular economy that we could genuinely describe as good garbage. It's wonderful. Well put. Clearly well thought of. <laughs> Thank you so much, Neil, for uh, being on the show, for the work that you guys are doing. It's truly uh, the need of the hour. Uh, to be able to specially look at materials that can provide the right barriers. Um, I wish you all the best for Kelpie and thank you again for being on the show and thank you for spending this time with us. Vaid, thank you very much. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you and I look forward to our next conversation as soon as that can happen. Thank you for listening to the Good Garbage Podcast. Follow us on social media to never miss an episode. Links are in the description below. I'm your host, Vaid Krishna. See you next time.